This morning we have two texts to look at. One short and one a little longer. As Jerry mentioned, the book of Proverbs, chapter 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable, that's Jesus. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Years ago, a friend of mine was speaking at a state prison. It was a chapel service, and the chaplain had produced a bulletin for the service, and on the cover was a picture of a prisoner. He could only see his back. He was kneeling on the ground in front of the cross. And on the back of his shirt was his prison number. And there was the caption, My God, I did that? And the answer is yes. And so did I. That same friend had a radio show, and he was interviewing two lesbians, and a Christian man called and said, you know, I'm a leader in my church, and I've got to ask you, would you have those two women in your church? My friend said, absolutely. The church is a good place for sinners. It took me in. The man said, don't you care about the purity of the church? My friend said, yeah, I just never found one. The man said, mine is. My friend said, that means you kicked out all the fat people, all the greedy people, all the guys who are lusting. You must have kicked out every Pharisee but yourself. And with that, the man hung up. And my friend said, my anger turned to sadness. He said, I had this overwhelming sadness of this guy never knowing the joy and freedom of mercy, never knowing a time when he's able to say, my God, I did that? It's all about mercy that Jesus speaks in Luke 18. He starts out telling the story of a judge who is accosted by a widow. The widow wants freedom from her adversary. And yet the judge won't give it. 
Now, in biblical times, there was a quartet of the vulnerable. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Every one of those groups had no standing in society. Their voice was not heard. And yet, throughout the Old Testament and the New, God is on the side of them. Throughout the Old Testament and the New, God is on the side of the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. And Jesus is talking about them. Here a widow comes to a judge looking for justice. She wants relief from her adversary. And he won't give it. But Jesus says she badgers the judge to the point that finally he relents. He frees her of her adversary not because he's faithful to his office, not because his heart goes out to her, not because he's doing his duty. He gives her justice because he wants to get rid of her. In other words, he gives her what she wants because of his own need to get rid of her. And instantly you think about the difference between a human judge and our heavenly judge. Our heavenly judge dispenses justice not to get rid of someone, but rather to draw one close. Our heavenly father desires to meet the needs of others rather than himself. No gospel writer except Luke, Luke, puts these two parables together. The parable of the widow and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Why does he do it? To show us the difference between human justice and divine justice. Back in the days of the Civil War, there were two women that were Quakers and they were talking about the two leaders of the Confederacy and the Union. Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln. One woman said to the other, I think that the South will win. Jefferson Davis is a praying man. The other woman said, well, Abraham Lincoln prays too. The first woman said, yeah, but when he prays, God thinks he's joking. Now, everywhere Lincoln went, he told that story. He loved to tell that story about himself. You know who wouldn't have told that story about himself? A Pharisee. Pharisees were known for prayers. They were known for purity. They were known for executing the letter of the law. They were known for their own goodness. And so Jesus tells us a story about a Pharisee who goes up to the temple to pray. He goes inside the temple courts and there he prays and he thanks God that he is not like other men. He thanks God for his own faithfulness. And then he gives reasons. The law of Moses required that a man fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. He fasts twice a week. The law of Moses required a man to give a tithe of one's income, a portion of his holdings. This man tithes on everything he has, even his assets. And his prayer reflects it. Somebody has called this prayer a soliloquy of one's own praise. Notice how he gets there. 
He prays, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men because he keeps his eyes on other men. The law of God causes him to look at other men. Years ago, I was traveling with a couple of guys, and late one night, one man began to sit there in the group of the three of us, and he began to confess his sin. I mean, we didn't ask him to do it. I mean, he just lays out this story, this long, deep story of regular sin. I mean, he's, he's telling it all, all of his struggles. He's totally transparent. And as he's talking, I feel convicted to share some of my junk. And so when he finishes, I begin to tell some of my problems, my sin. And when I finish, the first guy says to the third guy, do you have anything to share? I'll never forget what he said. He said, I'm glad I'm not like you guys. I don't have that kind of stuff in my life. Now, why does he do that? Why did he do that? Because he was comparing himself to us. The law was driving him not to look at himself, but to look at us. And that's exactly what the Pharisee does. Bonhoeffer said that there is such a thing as as cheap grace. You know what's a greater problem in the church today? Cheap law. That's what this Pharisee does. He cheapens the law. He believes he can keep it. And the reason he believes he can keep it is because he's looking at another man who can't. And he thinks he can. And in all of that, he misses the power and the joy of divine mercy. So let's look at it. First of all, notice the look. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now notice the difference here. While the Pharisee goes all the way into the temple to pray, this tax collector stands at a distance. Instead of raising his hands and his eyes to heaven, Jesus says he lowers his eyes and cannot look up. Not only that, Jesus says he beats his breast. You know what the Greek says? The word for beat means continual beating. So get this, he stands at a distance, he diverts his eyes, he beats repeatedly his breast. Why? Because he knows his heart. And he knows his heart needs beating. He can't look up with his eyes because his eyes have looked elsewhere and he's ashamed. He can't come into the temple. His feet have to stay at a distance because he knows that he hasn't walked in the way of virtue. His feet, his eyes, his heart all paint the same picture. It's a picture of a man who knows the gravity of his sin. Think of it. That widow comes to the judge to get justice. She wants relief from an outside 
threat. This man, when he prays, wants relief from an inside threat. His own heart. Second, notice not only the look, notice the life. Verse 13b. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, the Greek is very instructive here. He doesn't say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's how it's translated in English. But there's a definite article. What he literally is saying is, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And the reason he says the sinner is because he's unlike the Pharisee. He knows who he is. He doesn't say, God, have mercy on me because I'm not a Pharisee. He doesn't say, God, have mercy on me because I've sinned some. He said, God, have mercy on me because I know that I'm a sinner through and through. You know, in Greek, there are three words for mercy. One means to have compassion on somebody. Another means to pity someone. Another means to satisfy the rightful demands of justice. Get what word he uses. He's not looking for compassion. He's not looking for pity. He's looking for the demands of justice to be satisfied by another. You see, his deep sense of sin won't allow him to ask for sympathy or pity. His deep sense of sin drives him to long for complete deliverance. Unlike the Pharisee, the tax collectors, not able to cheapen the law, he knows the law's demands and he knows there's no way that he can satisfy those demands. And the reason he begs for mercy is because he knows that God is full of it. He's full of mercy. Did you know that in the Bible, over a thousand times in the Old Testament, God's name is linked to mercy? Right next to His name is a descriptor. And it's the word for mercy. Has said. This guy knows that. He knows that what he needs It's not justice. It's not compassion. It's not pity. It's absolute mercy. I love what Spurgeon said. When God measured the greatness of our sin, He found it to be as high as the heavens. When He measured the depth of our sin, He saw it as deep as the deepest hell. When He measured the width of our sin, He found that it was from east to west. That's why when God determined to do something about his sin, he sent himself. For no one else could satisfy the demands of the law. Then third, notice the longing. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever, for anyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now think of this guy. He comes to the temple condemned. He leaves justified. He comes to the temple unschooled in the law. 
And yet his heart knows that the demands of God are so great that he can never satisfy. He doesn't cop a plea. He doesn't build a case for his own goodness. He proposes no self-reform. Instead, he begs that the demands of the law are satisfied by another. Now, for the last number of weeks, I've felt compelled to ask the question if Jesus lied when he said in Luke 24, all Scripture speaks of me. Was he telling the truth? And one Sunday, we looked at the prophet Samuel, and we saw, yeah, he is talking about himself, because the story of David and Goliath is all about Jesus. As long as you focus on David and Goliath and miss Jesus, you're missing the essence of the story. We also looked at Joseph. Joseph's story is all about Jesus. Chapter 45, chapter 50, and every chapter in between. Over the years, we've seen Jesus in the writings. But have you ever seen Jesus in Proverbs? I mean, for most, Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings. And there's some good stuff there, like, it's better to live on the corner of a roof than in a house with a contentious woman. That's good advice. But have you ever seen Jesus in Proverbs? How about the proverb today? He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You know how I read that proverb for years? I saw it as a parallel to what the prophet Isaiah says. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And I thought about political correctness. I thought about Hugh Hefner. I thought about 50 Cent. I thought about Snoop Dogg. I thought about our denomination. Isn't that what he means? No, he's talking about Jesus. Didn't Jesus justify the wicked? Like the tax collector? Like the woman caught in the act of adultery? Like the woman at the well with five husbands, she's living with another guy? Like the thief on the cross? Didn't he? Didn't he? Didn't he justify the wicked? Didn't he condemn the righteous? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Woe to you, trust in your own goodness. Didn't he turn away the rich young ruler? The Bible says he loved him, but he didn't go after him. Didn't he ignore the Sanhedrin? Wasn't he silent before Pilate? In all the history of the world, there's only one person who fits this description absolutely, the one who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous, and his name is Jesus. And you know what happens when he does it? His father curses him, turns his back on him, and judges him as an abomination to the Lord. Now let me ask you something. 
Do you think Jesus was telling the truth when he said, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified? He came to the temple condemned. He goes away forgiven. He comes to the temple darkened by his own need, and he leaves in the light of God's mercy. He comes to the temple as an outcast. He goes home fully forgiven. How? Through God's total rejection of his son. He made him an abomination. The Father made Jesus an abomination so that you and I might know the joy and the power of knowing his mercy and then distributing it. Have you ever knelt before the cross and said, my God, I did that? If you have, you know what Jesus said to you. Yes, you have. You did. You were the reason. But I've got good news for you. As evil as the deed that you did to me. I did so much more for you. You know why the you know the problem with that caller? He believed the gospel is about judgment. It isn't. The gospel is all about mercy. And there's no better place to know that than at his table. So let's pray. Jesus, what a friend you are. You're the only one who could condemn us. You're the only one who totally and completely satisfied the law. You're the only one that could throw a stone. And yet instead, you took the whips, you took the spear, you took the nails. Jesus, we don't know how to thank you for justifying the wicked. For we are there. As we come to your table today, Lord, may we be possessed with your mercy. You know and we know that our default position is always self-righteousness. It's always to think we're better than somebody else. It's always to look in the sin of others. Lord, may we not play that game any longer. May we know that when you said it is finished, you meant it. We thank you for justifying us. We thank you for giving us mercy. We thank you that even though it's true, it's all because of us that you went to the cross, we can look at that cross and be delighted. Because there you did for us 
what we could never do for ourselves. So Lord, now as we come to your table, we ask that you take these elements, separate them from a common to a sacred purpose that as we eat and drink, we might receive your mercy and grace anew and afresh today and go from this place as agents of mercy and grace. For we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.